Okay, friends, uh, happy new year coming up upon you here. Uh, hopefully some of the things that we talk about will apply. A lot of times a day like January 1st, December 31st, it kind of gets us just sort of thinking a little bit, how was my last year, how'd it go? We take inventory of that, and, and we'll kind of do that a little bit today. Um, but we're going to do that in the context of our current passage of study. We've been moving through the book of First Chronicles. Uh, and so here we are in First Chronicles chapter 26. So go ahead and start turning to First Chronicles chapter 26. Now, the context of things you remember is David is passing leadership of the nation from himself to his son. David is going to die. He's coming to the end of his life. He had been ruling as the leader of Israel, Judah and Israel, for a period of 40 years. And he's about to come to the end of his life. And his chief goal is to make sure that the kingdom continues on, that his goals as a leader will continue on in the next leader. Now, we know the next leader is going to be his son, a man by the name of Solomon. And to his son, back in chapter 22, David makes it clear, this is my chief aim. This is really, if, you know, when all is said and done, this is what I hope you accomplish. And he says to him, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God. He didn't have the opportunity, David himself, to build the house. He was, if you will, forbidden from building it. But that didn't mean he didn't want the house to be built. And so he says to his son, I'm passing this on to you. Get the house built. Notice what he says in verse 14 of the same chapter. He says, with great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord. And then he goes on, he says, 100,000 talents of gold and silver and so on and so forth. And, and essentially he's saying there, look, I have sacrificed a lot of things. I didn't get that HDTV because I sacrificed to put the money in the building fund account. I put these things away for you so that you would have success in building the temple. That's my chief aim. Get the temple built. He says in verse 19, he says, Set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise, build the sanctuary, he says to him. So this is what he wants for his son. And he also, he doesn't just want a building built, but if you look at verse 12, he wants Solomon have to have the discretion, to have the wisdom to administer that building. At these chapters here where he goes and he names all of these people that are going to serve in the positions in the temple, the priests, the Levites, the custodians, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and so on, that's also that when the temple is built, it would run successfully. It will be administered successfully. So David's heart, his heart is to see that the temple get built and be running properly. And as we looked at chapters 23, 24, 25, we saw that those chapters dealt with these guys are going to be the Levites, these guys are going to be the priests, these guys are going to be the musicians, and so on. Now that we come to chapter 26, the group of people that he's going to deal with, you can see it right there in the beginning of verse 1, he says, and as for the division of the gatekeepers. These are going to be the people that open the door to let people in to come worship, and they also close the door for those that may not be prepared to come in to worship. They're security guards. And they're providing security for the temple, both practically as well as spiritually. Because, truly, it's important that, so to speak, ordinary people, you and I, uh, average people, that we understand the practical limits of holiness. And what I mean by that is, if my heart is not prepared, I don't just go wandering into the temple and think, oh, that's no big deal, it's just like another place you know, on the planet. That's not the way it works. The temple was a holy place, and people needed to be holy in order to enter in. They needed to be set apart, and they needed to be prepared. And these gatekeepers ensure that that is taking place. 
Now, if you look at verse 1 again, it says, Now, for the division of the gatekeepers of the Korahites, Meshelamiah, the son of Kor, the sons of Asaph, and so on. So we're introduced to this people, the Korahites. Now, if you're like me, some of these names sort of run into one another. You heard this name, you heard that name, they all sound basically the same. Uh, and sometimes you lose track of who is who. We've been talking a lot about uh, the Gershonites, the people of Gersh- Gershon, that fellow, the Merorites, the Kohathites, and these groups. And we've been following them through these chapters. And here now we're introduced to a Korahite. Don't confuse a Korahite with a Kohathite. All right, It's a different group of people here. These are the sons of Korah. And they were the gatekeepers. Now, if you read back in your Bible, you can trace their work, the the people of Korah, you can trace their work all the way back to the days of Moses and Aaron. And it was during the days of Moses and Aaron that they served as gatekeepers. That's 500 years. So for the last 500 years, this family was serving the Lord in this particular role. The grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and so on and so forth. Now, in those days, there was no temple. There was a tabernacle, a tent, so there were no gates, there were thresholds, you know, things, openings in the tents that you would walk through and so on. But nonetheless, this is the responsibility, these are the jobs that these guys had. And one of the things that I find very interesting as I considered this family, the, the sons of Korah, is that here they are in the, one of the most prominent, one of the most conspicuous positions that the tabernacle slash temple had to offer And the people that are placed in those positions are the sons of Korah. Now, you may not remember much about the sons of Korah or who Korah himself was, but we do have a record of who he is in the Scripture. And Korah was one of the most notorious rebels that the nation of Israel ever had. So if I said this, now, if you were in Israel and you said Korah, everybody would know, oh, Korah. So if I said to you, uh, you're such a Benedict Arnold, you know what I meant, right? I'm calling you a traitor. And everybody knows right off the top that, man, you just said I stabbed you in the back. You called me a traitor. Well, if I said the name Korah and compared you to that person, everyone would know you're calling me a rebel. Why are you calling me such bad names? You called me Korah. Well, Korah was the most notorious rebel. In, in Numbers chapter 16, we have the story of this fellow Korah. And it reads this way. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, they took men. They rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for in all the, con- all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you, two men, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord. So here, Korah, these other guys whose names you see there, they gather 250 men. 250 men is a lot of people. They gather a crowd of 250 people. It says that they gather well-known men, leaders of the congregation. So they're influential, and they go in and they stir up, if you will, a rebellion. And this crowd of 250 men, they come to Moses and Aaron, and they accuse them. They point their finger at them, and they basically say, Who do you two guys think you are? All of us are qualified. We could all do the job that you're doing. And you guys think you're something special, that you alone are the ones that could go before God, and and so on and so forth. And they've stirred up this rebellion. Now, if you continue to read through the book of Numbers, you see that a conversation 
ensues between Moses and Korah and these others, it, it's sort of a conversation. You ever watch the Jerry Springer show? And you know those conversations that they have on those shows? That's kind of the conversation that takes place. It's an argument. It's a, it's a squabble that goes back and forth here. And it's during that conversation that is taking place that you see the motivation behind the rebellion of this guy Korah and his friends. And the motivation is that he despised the minor tasks that he had to do while Moses and Aaron, they got to do all the good stuff. And so I don't know who you guys think you are. Who do you think you are? Moses is essentially what he is saying. Now, we know who Moses is. And many of us remember that Moses didn't want this job in the first place. In Exodus chapter 4, after giving a series of reasons for why God picked the wrong guy, when God came to him and said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, after giving a series of reasons why Moses didn't want to do it, he finally says to God, he says, oh my Lord, please pick somebody else to go. Can you, can you hear the begging there? I don't want to do it. Please just go pick somebody else. And God says, no, you're the guy that I'm going to do it. Also, in Numbers, the passage that has the story of the rebellion of Korah, in Numbers chapter 16, as Moses is praying to God, he sort of addresses one of the accusations that is being brought against him. Because in Numbers 16, he says, I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed any one of them. So there was sort of this accusation that was hanging out there that Moses was trying to get rich you know, by being the leader or he was abusing his authority or something like that. And Moses is essentially saying to God, he said, you know my heart. You know I haven't done any of these things. I don't want to do any of these things. I'm not in this for myself. I'm not trying to get rich or have some power trip. I'm a servant. We're all servants, you know, he might say to these people that are before him there. And this is how God has called us to serve. And so I'm humbly seeking to serve him and to worship him in the way that he ordained. But Korah didn't like it. And so the core, if you will, or the root of Korah's rebellion, I think we could use the phrase that is found in the Old Testament book a little further along in our passage here in, in the Old Testament. And that's the phrase from the book of Zechariah. And in the book of Zechariah, he is speaking of the despising the day of small things. Despising the day of small things. Now the context of the book of Zechariah Zechariah is one of those minor prophets. It's what a lot of people call the section of their Bible, the clean pages of your Bible. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't get to that section of their Bibles for one reason or another. Uh, but it's a great section of your Bible. Uh, and Zechariah is a great book. In there it speaks of the return of the Lord and the days of the Lord and these things. And Zechariah was written much the same time this book, First Chronicles, was written when the nation of Israel was returning from its captivity in Babylon and it was coming back to the land. And the, the, the root of the book, the focus of the book, is the rebuilding of the nation of Jerusalem and specifically of the temple uh, in that particular area there. The companion book to Zechariah, if you're going to make your way to the clean section of your Bible and you're going to read the book of Zechariah, well, then you've got to read the book of Haggai too. And that's only a couple of chapters and so you've got to read those two books together because they're basically addressing the same things from different angles. The book of Haggai is dealing with the physical condition of the nation of Israel, of the, the, country of Jeru or the uh, city of Jerusalem. And it's explaining we've got to do this and this and this and it's important that we do that. And so it's dealing with the physical conditions. The book of Zechariah is dealing with the spiritual condition of the people as they're returning back to the land. And essentially, the reason why you read both of those books together 
is because Zacharias says, hey, what good is it to rebuild the temple if your heart's not right to let you even go in to the temple? So deal with your heart, is what Zechariah is saying there. And in chapter 4 of the book of Zechariah, one of the heart conditions that needs to be dealt with in the people is a condition of discouragement. But here's a people that basically are looking at what life has before them, and they are at the point of being so discouraged that they don't want to go forward. What's the use? Why bother? There's n- we're never going to get a t- on top of this. We're never going to get ahead of these things, and so we might as well just give, just give up. And if you read uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 9, it says, now the hands of, this is Zechariah speaking, he says, the hands of Zerubbabel, you can see there that that was the governor of the land of Jerusalem, he says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see. So here was a situation. You have people that are returning from Israel that had seen the glory of the temple before. And now the thing essentially lied in ruins. And they had been spending their time and their efforts trying to rebuild it. And maybe they got like one or two courses high on the wall. And it's sort of like, you know, we're never going to get this thing done. Let's give up. And Zacharias says, no, 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 you guys here that saw Zerubbabel lay the first stone, you're going to see him lay the last stone. You'll get through this. This job will be done. And at this point, it's just some small thing that looks in front of you that you might despise and say, it's a, it's a piece of junk. This place is a, a bunch of rubble. He says, but you're going to see this through. Now, in the context of what I'm speaking of here with Korah, back in Numbers chapter 16, I think that Korah, that what is going on in his heart is sort of a sense of discouragement discouragement for the minor tasks that he has been assigned while guys like Moses and guys like Aaron, they get to do sort of all the good things. And one of the things that I, that I realize in my life is I seek to serve the Lord in, in a variety of ways since knowing him and coming to him is sometimes as a person who is seeking to serve the Lord, there's a real struggle that takes place. A struggle with the things that we're doing and a struggle with not despising to use the phrase of Zechariah, the small things. Sometimes we despise the small things because of pride. You know, and it's like, man, I'm too good for this. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know my education? Don't they know what I do professionally? Don't they know my background? Don't they know how long I've been in the Lord? Don't they know? Don't they know? Don't they know? Why are they throwing me in this low-level task here? I'm better than this. And sometimes it's pride which causes us to despise those small things. But other times it may not come from pride. I think it did for Korah. But I think other times in our lives, in my life, when I've looked at some of those small things and I was tempted to sort of despise uh, the things that God was having me to do, sometimes it comes from a place of, you know, it's not that I am unwilling to do this, but I wonder, what good is doing this? What am I accomplishing through this? This task that I'm doing seems to be meaningless. I got involved in serving the Lord because I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. I wanted to introduce them to a place of faith in the same way that someone introduced me to a place of faith. I want to accomplish something. And then we look at maybe the tasks that we're having and we wonder, how am I really affecting anything by setting up chairs on a Sunday morning? What kind of change am I affecting there? How am I doing uh, anything for God, accomplishing anything for God by simply caring for some babies? What did Brian say? So that they don't die you know, by the end of service time. You know, how, how is that really making an impact? For years, I was in charge of organizing the games for youth. 
uh, you know, there's only so many games you can play with youth. And, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, this isn't fun. And unless somebody is potentially going to get hurt during this game, I don't want to be involved anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I'm looking for something more fun to do uh, here. Standing behind an information table. The temptation to stand there and think, you know what? And nobody here. This is a waste of my time. Nobody even knows I'm here. Handing out a bulletin. Teaching a small, small group Bible study. I remember when one kid was showing in my Bible study. And I would spend hours preparing for the study and sit there staring at one kid. Anyway, he went on to be our senior high youth leader, though, uh, Josh Johnson. So God uses those small things. But there's a temptation to look at the responsibility of, as small things and to become discouraged. And I think Zechariah's encouragement to these people of Jerusalem, as well as ours, is to not allow the small things to discourage us. Because here's another thing that I've discovered is, more often than not, it's the day of the small things, those tasks that perhaps we think are meaningless, that God wants to accomplish a work in us just as, he, just as much as He wants to accomplish a work through us. And it's just as important as what God is doing in our lives and the work that he's accomplishing in our hearts as anything that we're doing for anybody else. And so God, as he's accomplishing that work within our hearts during the day of those small things, so that he can graduate us on, if you will, to the bigger things. My experience has been, it's in the small things that God teaches us humility. It's when we do those small things that we discover, really, what was, what was your real motivation in signing up in the first place. It's in the small things that we learn perseverance or continuing in a task that we really don't like and doesn't bring any joy to us. That's the lessons that God is teaching us in the small things. It's in the small things that we learn the truth that truly every part of the body contributes to the health of the whole body. And I think that's a valuable lesson for when you do graduate up that you're not taking advantage of those that or, so to speak, in those smaller areas, because you recognize every task is valuable when it's unto the Lord. It's in the small things that we learn faithfulness. And we learn from the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 4, that the key requirement of a steward of God is that they be found to be faithful or trustworthy. And so, the day of small things, it's a training ground. And you can be like Korah, where you can despise them. You could say, I'm better than this. I don't want to do this anymore. And you can sort of force the promotion. You know, you force the promotion, you force the hand of God. You go and you, you take 250 people and you go and start your own work or whatever it may be, like Korah did. But the example from the Scripture is we see is whenever we force, quote, so to speak, the hand of God or the circumstances, the fruit never lasts. It, it may kind of bud for a little while there, but it, soon it, it rots and it, it's not a lasting fruit because we cut ahead of God in the whole process. Or you can look at the small things and learn the lesson or lessons that God has for you in that place. And let Him use that place in your life to prepare you and to grow you for the greater calling that He has in store for you. So the sons of Korah. Now, ten minutes ago I began a point. And I'm going to come back to it. And that is that here is here are these men, these relatives of this guy, Benedict Arnold, this Korah, that everybody knows who he is. And here are these guys that are placed in a very prominent and conspicuous position in the temple or the tabernacle. So when you walked into the temple or the tabernacle, 
you would see these guys. You know how some families, like every kid looks like a clone of the others, and you're like, you're one of those guys, aren't you? You're from that particular family. Well, I imagine it was like that for Korah. And so people come in and they're looking, and you're like, your granddad was Korah, wasn't it? Yeah, you look just like him, or whatever it may be. And so when you walk in on the scene of the temple or the tabernacle, and you look at these guys, your mind immediately knows that's a son of Korah. And of course, you're going to be reminded of the fact, or you're going to remember, that Korah was the one who rebelled. And so by seeing a son of Korah there, in your mind, you are reminded our God is a very merciful God that we serve. He doesn't hold grudges against the children of those that have sinned against him. And every time that these sons of Korah are opening a door and you walk by and you say thank you and you recognize his face, you can remind yourself of the living example of the mercy of our God. The service of these sons of Korah, it can serve as a form of encouragement to those of us that perhaps we wrestle with or we think, you know what, if you only knew the background from which I came, if you only knew sort of my heritage that I came out of and the people you know, that have spawned someone like me, you would never put me in this particular position or that particular position. But the reality is when you look at a son of Korah opening a gate to the temple, you can be reminded of the truth that God can use anyone. And many of you know I grew up here in Ewing Township. I wandered for two years when I was 21 down to Lambertville, uh, but God called me back home, if you will. Uh, and so I lived, I'm 41, so 39 years of my life have, has been in this community. Even when I lived in Lambertville, I worked at the high school in this community. So all my life I've been here. Uh, and I didn't always know the Lord. And there was a period of my life where uh, I didn't know the Lord, and so I didn't honor the Lord uh, with my particular life. And, and one of my I don't know, it's not a fear or whatever, but one of the things that I, I'm always just waiting to happen is one day, one of my old friends from when I was 19, 20, or whatever, at 17, 16, is going to come into this community center, and they're going to stop the service. And they're going to say, you all need to know who this guy was, you know, or is, or whatever, as if that that's going to disqualify us from ministry. And, and the reality is, though, in an instance like that, all of us will be able to turn to that person and say, you know what, he is a testimony of the grace of God that is available to each one of us, that God can use anyone. And a word that you might use, a phrase that you might use to describe it, of what God does through unworthy people by enabling them to minister, a phrase you might be able to use is that we are trophies of God's grace. Now, if you come to my house, you're more than welcome. Right, dear, is that okay? I just invited the whole church. Uh, if you come over my house at some point in time and you walk in the front door, you're, you're basically entering into the dining room. And we have a, a TV, a big old TV in, in the front that the kids play their video games on. And sitting on top of that television is a trophy. It's like a four-foot-high trophy. Uh, and that trophy is for my son Luke. His, his soccer team just won the championship or whatever, and they're going to put it here in the trophy shelf, but they want to have a pizza party first. So there's a big trophy in the front of the room. And if you walk into the room, inevitably, you're going to be there, and you're going to eventually turn, and you're going to be like, hey, look at that trophy. And you're either going to ask, or you're going to walk up to it, and you're going to read it, and you're going to look, what was that trophy for? What did you win it? It's going to draw your attention. And so that's why we're going to put it in the trophy shelf out here, or we would put things like that up on a mantle. And I think God delights in doing that. God delights to put your life in such a place that it's set up on a mantle. And that people can look at your life and they can say, I think I remember four or five years ago. I think I remember 20 years ago, your life. You're very different. And that gives you the opportunity to tell a person of the work that God is doing 
in your heart. You are a trophy of his grace. And by being placed up on that mantle for all to see and to have their attention drawn to, so to speak, it gives you an opportunity to speak of the merciful God that we all serve. That's great news. It shouldn't surprise you. It's what God wants to do in you. So give him glory. And I think the sons of Korah, by being chosen to be these uh, gatekeepers, they are such that they're able to give glory to God just by their very presence. Now, if you look to verse 4, verse 4 speaks of another fellow. Now, if you read verse 4, it says, And Obed-Edom had sons, and Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehozabad, and, and so on and so forth. Now, you might read that, and in the context of verses 1 through 4, you might say, well, who's Obed-Edom? You know, you're just kind of throwing a name in there. So read it this way instead, where it says, Now, of the divisions of the gatekeepers, of the Korahites, these people. Of Obed-Edom, these people. A little bit later down, you're going to read another name of this guy, those people. And so we're transitioning from the sons of Korah to the next group of gatekeepers, and these are those that are from the family of Obed-Edom. Now, Obed-Edom is a, a strange name. I don't know anyone that would name their kids these days Obed-Edom. Uh, but you may recall Obed-Edom from chapter 13. We looked at Obed-Edom. You know, in chapter 13, you have the story of where David has decided he's going to take the Ark of the Covenant, which had, after the, the many years of wandering through the wilderness, had found a home in Israel, uh, outside of Jerusalem, had found a home in Israel. And David now, since he's making Jerusalem as the center of the nation and as the capital of the nation, he decides he wants to bring that Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. We looked at this passage in chapter 13. You may recall that David's method of transporting the Ark of the Covenant was to place it upon an ark, or excuse me, upon a cart, and have the cart pull the ark, essentially, uh, to Jerusalem. This was not the way that God had intended for the Ark of the Covenant to be moved. And inevitably, an event occurred where the Ark of the Covenant, the donkeys that were pulling this, or the cattle that were pulling this, they hit sort of a rock, and the cart's about to flip over, and there's a guy who comes running to steady the ark. And he runs and he touches the ark. You don't touch the ark. Even if it's falling over, it should never have been on the cart in the first place, but it's falling over. He runs to steady the ark, and he's struck down dead. And David calls the whole thing off. He says, forget it. Just leave the ark here. And he goes home back to Jerusalem. And now the ark is sitting, you know, on the middle of the side of the road, if you will. And the closest home of one of these priests here is a guy by the name of Obed-Edom. And they transport the ark to Obed-Edom's house, and they put it in his living room. And it sits in the front room of his house there. That's the Obed-Edom of whom we're speaking of. I've always thought it was interesting that this guy who was sort of out in the middle of nowhere in Israel, just small little minor tasks, nobody really knows who he is or anything about him, and in one instance he was thrust to sort of the center of all this activity. And how many times did people come to his house and knock on his door and say, hey, could we come and see the ark? Would you mind if we came in and took a look at it? And he sort of was the gatekeeper to that ark and said, well, have you ritually cleansed yourself and this and that? Okay, you can come in, or no, you can't come in, or whatever it may be. But he was, he was thrust into this place of uh, going from nobody to somebody. And then one day, somewhere between chapter 13 and where we are today, David comes to him and he says, hey, we're here to take the ark from you. We think, we estimate that it was at his house for a little over a year. And now, here I am, this hero, everyone knows who I am and, and thinks highly of me, and now all of a sudden the ark is gone and nobody comes and visits anymore. And nobody cares really who I am anymore. I'm just Obed-Edom, some guy living out in the sticks of Israel. And he went from a place, if you will, of uh, notoriety 
back to the place of obscurity again. And how did he respond to that? He responded, that's okay. I'm just a servant. And so he had a humble, servant-like response. You see, he hadn't become too important as a result of all the notoriety he had when the ark sat in his front living room. And when the ark is taken out, he simply returns to the place of quiet and consistent service, awaiting the next opportunity to minister that God might give to him. And as we read in our particular passage here, the next opportunity was for him and his sons to serve at the temple. And so in verses 4 through 6, it speaks of, or verses 4 through 8, I believe, it speaks of Obed-Edom. And look at the end of verse 8. It says that there were 62 of his sons that served uh, in the temple as gatekeepers. Now somebody stopped me in between service. 62 kids? That's crazy. Now when we talk about sons, we're not just saying our direct sons, grandsons, great-grandsons. These are all the children that came from, if you will, Obed-Edom. And it's those people over those generations that are serving here, the 62 in there. So that's Obed-Edom. Look down to verse 12. We'll continue our study in verse 12. And verse 12 is speaking of some more gatekeepers. And if you read, it said, now the divisions, of, well, it explains the process. The divisions of the gatekeepers corresponding to their chief men had duties, just as their brothers did, ministering in the house of the Lord. The brothers that it is speaking of, they're the brothers from chapters 23, 24, 25. The ones that, of the children of Israel that served as priests the ones that served as Levites, the ones that served as musicians, the ones that served as custodians, and so on. That's who it's speaking of there. And you remember, they had divisions. And remember, chosen by the lot, it was determined that you'll serve this particular week. You had six months off, and then you would serve another week. So you would serve about two weeks at the temple every particular year. This verse here, verse 12, is essentially saying the same way that those people had their tasks designated is how these gatekeepers had their tasks designated. So when a new priest comes in, a new musician comes in, a new gatekeeper comes in. And at the end of the week, three new guys come in, and so on and so forth. All right? Well, anyway. Look down, if you will, to verse 14. In verse 14, we begin reading, and it speaks of the gates that these families are going to uh, be in charge of. Now, there were four gates leading into the temple area. Now, I've been saying temple... And, and that could probably be confusing, and so I should be careful, more careful with my words. When, when we speak of the temple, we're talking specifically of the building, the rectangular-shaped building. But that building, eventually they started building all sorts of other structures around it, really getting to the point of the days of Christ or the period just after Christ when that whole temple mount area was just this glorious structure of a thing where there were covered porches and separate buildings and and all sorts of stuff that was going on. So the temple specifically is the rectangular building that was probably in the middle of all those things. But there were pathways that led to it. And those pathways are, it would be the temple area. And each of those pathways had gates that uh, prevented people from coming in or going out to those areas. Not specifically into the temple, but into the temple area. And if you look at verse 14, in verse 14 we realize that on the eastern gate, so there's four gates, on the eastern gate is, was led by this family of Shelemiah. Verse 14 also says on the northern gate was Zechariah. Or Zechariah. If you look down to verse 15, it said that Obed-Edom's family, the family we just learned about, they were on the southern gate. 
And then if you look at verse 16, on the western gate, it was divided between two individuals, a guy by the name of Shephan and a fellow by the name of Hosea. That is there. Look at verse 16. It continues. It says, watch corresponded to watch. And, and again, that goes back to what I said in verse 12, that when the priest went off duty, the musician went off duty, the gatekeeper went off duty, another shift of guys kind of came in. Watch corresponded to watch. You'll also notice in verse 16, that the eastern gate had six keepers, whereas the rest only had four, it seems. Uh, and that is because the eastern gate served as the main gate into the temple area. And so since that's where most people would enter, they had more people. And then finally, moving verse by verse through, look at verse 19. It says, Now these were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the Korahites and among the sons of Merari. Now verse 19 is simply, it's a transitional verse, a summary verse is a better term. Uh, if you read verse 19, it's essentially what verse 1 and verse 10 have said. It was an explanation of the sons of Korah and the sons of Merari, so it's just a summary verse to wrap up that section of the chapter. Which brings us then to verse 20, the next section of the chapter. And verse 20 through the end of the chapter, verse 32, is going to move us away from gatekeepers. So we looked at priests, we looked at Levites, we looked at musicians, we looked at custodians, we looked at gatekeepers, and now we are moving to a group of people that will have a job to do both at the temple and outside of the temple, and that is treasurers. The treasurers, those who would, look at verse 20, those who had charge of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the dedicated gifts. And then following verse 20, you have a long list of names. Now, I'm going to save you reading through all of their names, and instead I'll just draw your attention to three guys. Three guys that are sort of the leaders of these treasurers. The first is at the conclusion of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22, and it's a fellow by the name of Jehieli. Jehieli, you can see him there in verse 22, and then all of his sons. So they were a group of the treasurers, caring for the treasury of the palace and the temple. Verse 24, Shebuel, you can see his name there, where he comes from, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and so on. He was a treasurer and his brothers. And if you look at verse 26, you have the fellow by the name of Shilamoth. These three men would lead the groups that would serve as the treasurer for the temple and the palace. And their job would be to administer both the building of the temple, and I hate, you're getting low on money, watch your budget, you know, those sorts of things, uh, and also the operation of the temple. Did you save your receipts? Did you, you know, file a form that has to get them uh, reimbursed to you and so on? Uh, that's essentially what their job is. They, they're keeping the treasury. Now, if you look at verse 27, of uh, chapter 26, I turn my page, and you look at verse 27, it informs us where they get all this wealth. How oh, a bunch of guys living out in the desert area get all this money. Well, you look at verse 27, it says they got it from the spoil won in the battles, which they dedicated gifts for the maintenance of the house of the Lord. So they took these, um, the spoils of war, the gold, the silver, you know, whether that be coins or blocks or uh, items, you know, like a cup or something like that. They took those things, and rather than using that, David, Samuel, who was a prophet, priest, and king, sort of, of the nation. Saul, even, who, uh, as a king, he even dedicated these things unto the Lord, even though he wasn't a, the greatest of kings. Uh, instead of using these gifts to make themselves rich, they turn around and they dedicated them to the Lord. You remember what David said in... First Chronicles 22, I introduced you to this earlier today. David said to his son Solomon, he said, With great pains 
I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and silver and so on and so forth with great pains. Again, that tells us that he sacrificed him, his cell, himself and his own pleasures in order for the work of the Lord so he could dedicate these things unto the Lord. That's the context of what we're talking about. And thus a great treasury build up. Remember, David was king for 40 years. Saul, I don't remember exactly. Uh, it's up there somewhere in my mind. But for an extended period of time, these guys served as the kings of their nation and they had these victories over their enemies and there were lots of spoils. And so the treasury build up. And I think it's important for us, whether it involve money or fame or acclaim or notoriety, whatever it may be, as a servant of God, to ask ourselves this question regularly. Whose kingdom are you building? Who are you drawing the attention to? Who's benefiting from these victories? And, and how did the victories come to David or to Samuel or to Saul? They came because the hand of the Lord was upon David and Samuel and Saul. And so all these spoils, they're not David's spoils, they're not Saul's spoils, they're God's spoils. And David and Saul and Samuel, they realized that, and they stored these things up, not for themselves, but so that the name of the Lord would be exalted. They'd be, they'd be turned around and they'd cause the building and the administering of the temple. Well, as we move on to verse 29, and we're not going to make it to 27, chapter 27 today, so if you uh, read your bulletin and you saw two chapters, I'm sorry, we're not going to make it there. Uh, but verse 29 and 30 are sort of the concluding verses of our chapter here. And in those particular verses, there's a new group of people. So today we saw gatekeepers, we saw treasurers. And look at verse 29. 29 says, Of the Israelites, Chenaniah and his sons were appointed to external duties for Israel as officers and judges. So these guys, officers and judges. Officers and judges of external duties. Now the external duties that we're speaking of were external. The word means outside of. Thanks, Greg. You know, we went to school. We understand our dictionary. Uh, external, it's outside of what? Outside of Jerusalem in particular. So outside of the land of Jerusalem, there were people that were designated to be officers and judges. You can see in the passage here that 1,700 of those men, they will come from the Hebronite people, the people of Hebron, the person Hebron. And their responsibility, notice, uh, let me draw attention to it, they had oversight of Israel westward of the Jordan. So again, if you think of the land of Israel, it's much like the, the shape of the state of New Jersey. And if you had to take the state of New Jersey and narrow it down to like the basic shapes that are out there, I know there's trapezoids and rhomb rhombies and all those sorts of things. I don't really know what they look like. But I know what a circle looks like. I know what a square looks like. And I know what a rectangle looks like. And if you had to take Israel, of those three shapes, what would you pick? You would Thank you, Mark. You're very smart. And you would take this rectangle. And so you have a rectangle shape of the nation of Israel. To the north of the rectangle, to the top, if you will, of the nation of Israel are nations. Today, nations like Syria and Lebanon uh, are up to the north. To the south, the deserty area of the nation of Egypt and others are down there to the south. But on the one side, the western border of the nation, it's all water. It's the Mediterranean Sea. From top to bottom and all the way out, it's water, the Mediterranean Sea. On the eastern side of the particular of Israel, of this rectangle, if you will, the sideline of this rectangle, down the bottom is the Dead Sea. Up top is the Sea of Galilee, big lakes, if you will. And then there's a river that runs connecting the two. That river is the Jordan River. Okay? And so the Jordan River, when it says here, it's when he says the western what's he say? He says the western oversight over the westward of the Jordan. 
they're talking about, the Jordan they're talking about is the Jordan River. They're using the Jordan River as sort of a delineating mark. And so we saw 1,700, it said, 1,700 of the Hebronites, you're going to be on the west side of the Jordan. That means you're inside the rectangle, it means. 1,700 officers and judges to administer, to keep the peace, to make sure everybody is safe, and so on. 1,700 inside of the rectangle. On the other side of the rectangle, if you look down to verse 32, it speaks of 2,700 men that are going to be on the outside of the rectangle. What are they going to do outside there? If Israel is the rectangle, who are they going to go administer to? Ah, very good. I'm glad you asked that question. Because you, that means you were reading through your Bible and you remember that when the children of Israel were coming out of slavery in Egypt, who led them? Good. Thank you, Ruth. Moses led them through. Give her a star. You get a little star. All right? And Moses led them wandering around, and they're wandering around below, south of the rectangle, and then they come up along on the right side, on the eastern side of the nation. They're outside of the area that was promised to them, and it takes them 40 years or so to make their way, and they finally get there, and when they look into the land, God essentially reminds Moses, that's it. You're going to get there. You're not going to be able to go in, Moses, but the people are going to be able to go in. You've led them here. Great job. Well, just before that occurs, three tribes come to Moses, and they say, look, man, we've been wandering around for 40 years. We're getting a little tired of this whole wandering thing. We're not sure you know where you're going, uh, is essentially what they say uh, to him. And they look around, and they see the land of this area outside of the Promised Land. It's the nation of Jordan today. Back then it was called Moab. And they look around, and they say, you know what? This is good enough. We're content to stay here. If you look at the verse, it's Numbers chapter 32, they say, look, the land here is a land for livestock. If we have found favor, Moses, do not take us across the Jordan River. We're content to just stay here. So here are men, women, leaders. It was three tribes. It was actually two and a half tribes. The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the people of the tribe of Manasseh. They come to Moses, their leaders do, their representatives do. They come to Moses and they, they're just at the edge of all that God had promised them. For the last 500 years, the promises that he made to them, they come to the edge of that and they can see it and it's there for them to grab and they say to Moses, you know what, this is good enough. We'll settle here and we'll be content in this particular place. Now, interesting, if you continue to study the life of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, not those individuals but those tribes, if you continue to look, what you discover is from that day forward, the rest of their lives was a life of continual struggling against the influences of the foreign nations around them, militarily as well as culturally. All because, I think, all because of that decision where they said, you know what, this is good enough. We're, to, we're content to stay here. Interesting, when the nation of Israel did give in to idolatry, right around the, uh, you really see it come to a head around the year 700 or so and following, the years following, when they did give in to that idolatry, the people that led the way were the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those that situated themselves outside of the Promised Land. And the reason I bring it all up here is because I find it very interesting is that while it takes 1,700 men to administer and lead the people and provide for their care inside the Promised Land, inside the rectangle, that's ten and a half tribes of the people. It takes 2,700 men to care for two and a half tribes outside of the Promised Land. You see, I think the Promised Land in the Scripture is a good type 
of the victorious life that God has for each one of us as his followers. Now, if you come from a background that sings hymns and things like that, then you're probably familiar that many times when we sing hymns and we speak of crossing over Jordan land and these sorts of things, many times what we're talking about is dying and going to heaven. We're going to cross over Jordan and then I'll be in that glorious promised land or whatever it may be. But I don't think that analogy is a really good one for how it it fits the scriptures. I can sing the songs and I understand what you're saying and, and I get the idea and I'm looking forward to heaven too. But I don't think in the scripture the picture is painted that that metaphor fits. Because if you look at the promised land, it's a great and glorious place, but they're still struggling. There's still sin. There's still failure. There's still compromise. That's not my interpretation of heaven. And that's not what I'm looking for. So I think a better analogy or metaphor of crossing over the Jordan and coming into the promised land is not about going into heaven, but rather it's speaking of the victorious life that God has for each one of us as his followers. That life which is free from compromise, that life which has victory over those areas of sins, sin that the writer of Hebrews says so easily beset us, that life that is enjoying a sweet and intimate fellowship with God, that's the victorious life, that's the promised land that God has for us, that God wants for each one of us. You know, and sometimes I think we look at that, that sort of statement of that kind of a life, that kind of a walk with God, a walk that's free from habitual sin, a walk that's free from compromise, a walk that regularly, daily, moment by moment, enjoys sweetness of fellowship with God. And we might look at that and we might think, yeah, I, I see that out there, but that's really only for the really spiritual. That's really only for people that are, leading, that are allowed to lead our home fellowships. That's really only for the people that are our pastors, our worship leaders, or this or that. And we think that it's a special breed of Christian that experiences that sort of life. But what the Scripture teaches me is that's, that's the default. That's the standard of what it should be to walk with Jesus, is that enjoying the sweetness of fellowship, freedom from the chains of sin that bind us, not giving in to compromise, and so on, having victory. So that's inside the rectangle, to go back to a different metaphor. You still with me? Fantastic. Outside, I think, of the land of Israel, outside of the promised land, on the other side of the Jordan River, I think that's also a picture or a type. And I think that serves as a type for us of those believers, believers, they recognize the work of Jesus on the cross. They recognize that by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. They've confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. They're believers, they're Christians, yet they're living on the other side of the promised land. I think that's a type of those that have not entered into victorious life. And what I mean by that is, it's people that have come to recognize by faith the saving work of Christ, but yet continue to live of, key word, underlying and emboldened in my notes, of the world system. Now when I speak of the world system, I'm speaking of those thoughts, those ideas, those influences that stand opposed to God and what God is trying to do. And there are some Christians that have basically chosen to throw themselves before those thoughts, those ideas, those influencers, and just sort of take it all in, that kind of thing. And what happens is, by the choices that those believers are making, I think what is happening is they're making themselves all the more susceptible to the pressures of living in the world. Now the scripture says, not, not literally, but the concept is that we are to be in the world, 
but not of the world. We're in the world in that we interact with the world. We're not hermits. We don't pull ourselves apart uh, and separate. And I can't, I'm sorry, I can't mix with you. You're one of those people. We, we don't do that. We interact with, we care for, we look for opportunities to love, uh, love on those who don't know and seek, so that they might seek the Lord. But in doing all of that, by being in the world, we take great care to make sure that the thoughts, ideas, and influences of the world that stand opposed to God, that they're not influencing us or conforming us into their image. So how do we make ourselves susceptible to the influence of the world? So to speak, how do you go from being in the box, the rectangle, and cross over the Jordan, and now all of a sudden you find yourself, and I'm susceptible to the world system? Well, I think we do this in a number of ways. And there's probably a gazillion ways. But I'm just going to give you some examples that can help you process it a little bit as I, it helps me process things. Number one, you ask yourself, what sort of TV shows are you watching? Oh, come on. Did you get off the whole TV thing? Why is that important? Because messages are conveyed through the shows that we're watching about what is appropriate, what is acceptable, what everybody is doing, and all these sorts of things. And you take that in again and again and again, and what starts to happen in your life is that just becomes normal. That becomes accessible. That becomes the way it is. You've been influenced by a world system. The lyrics to the songs that we're listening to. You ever stop and listen to them? You ever stop and consider the message that is coming forth? They're influencing you, whether you know it or not. The media voices that you allow to speak into your life. The people that you seek for advice. And this doesn't just have to be one-on-one -on -one conversations. You know, but if I turn on the TV and find out what it is I should think, well, what does Oprah say? And she's not on TV anymore, but I like, I've always picked on Oprah, poor Oprah. You know, but how many times I remember growing up, people say, well, Oprah said. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. You know, but I choose to get my influence somewhere else. The, the TV shows or whatever that might, not, not a, like an entertainment show, but the talk shows, those sorts of things. Magazine articles that explain kind of this is what this is and this is what it means and this is what you should do. Are we taking those things in? Are we allowing these influencers to speak into our life without going to the Word of God and sort of sifting all of that information and kind of balancing it out through the Word of God in prayer? The more that we find ourselves living on the far side of the Jordan River, outside of the land of promises, the more susceptible we are to falling in and giving into the world system. And the result of all of that is that it's a constant struggle. Our walk with Jesus, this isn't pleasant. I'm not having a good time here. This isn't fun. I'm not enjoying this. All I feel like is I'm constantly struggling. All I feel like is all I want to do is sin and give in to sin. And I don't like this walk with God, and I wish I could just give it all up. Because we are too close to that world system, you need 2,700 men to guard you there, where only to guard two and a half tribes, whereas you only need 1,700 to guard ten and a half tribes. There's a constant struggle. There's an absence of peace. That sense that you have that you're right with God. There's an absence of that peace and joy. There's an absence of intimacy of relationship. And again, the result is that twice as much work is needed to keep yourself from stumbling. And quite honestly... Stumbling is more likely inevitable. Not just keep yourself from it, but it's really it's just a matter of time that you'll give in and that you'll stumble. And so, I want to encourage you this morning in the same way that I encourage myself. You know, one of the nice things about a new year coming upon us, just an arbitrary date certainly, but with a new year coming upon us, many of us sort of take inventory of life, kind of what this last year held for us, uh, and we went through an experience, and we look ahead to the next. 
and whether you make formal resolutions or you just kind of think through life and you say, you know what, I wish this next year would be different, better, uh, this or that, it, it comes up. And I, I think in this next year, it would be very wise of each of us to consider the choices that we're making. Consider the places that we put ourselves in and the things that we allow to influence us and to impact us. Make wise choices. I think God has a great, great desire for us. I think God wants to take every one of us, bring us to the edge of the Jordan River, and have us you know, go up on that high place. And it, The group that's going to Israel, you're going to go there, you're going to see it, you're going to look. Same thing that Moses and all the others saw. You go to that high place and you're going to be able to look out over the land of Israel. And I think God wants to basically take us to that place and say, this is what I have for you. I want you to have victory. I want you to be done with the struggle. I want you to be done with the compromise. This is for you there. And how ashamed would it be for us to stand there and say, eh, nah, that's all right. This is good enough. I'm content to stay here and compromise and sin and failure and struggle. Uh, certainly the Lord doesn't want that for us. And so I encourage you, prayerfully, consider the choices that you're making. Commit yourself in your walk with the Lord, growing in Him, abiding in Him. And I think God will just bless you in great, great ways this coming year. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so very much Lord, that You desire for us very, very good things. I have a plan for You, a purpose, You tell us in Your Word. And Father, that plan and purpose, among other things, it involves a sweetness of fellowship. It involves victory over areas of sin. Lord, it involves uh, clipping, cutting those chains that bound us. Moving forward, Lord, just in a sweetness of fellowship with You. And Father, I pray for each person here Lord, that this uh, coming year would be a year of great blessing. Lord, that they would know You in a way that they've never known You before. They'd experience the closeness of relationship with You. They thought they knew before, but they would know it in a new way that they would be convinced, I didn't know anything before. Lord, I, I believe if You bless each of us in that way, Father, great things will be happening within our hearts and uh, through our hands, so to speak. So, Father, we present ourselves to You. We ask that you would use your word this morning and throughout this year to shine your light on every area of our lives. Father, we pray that as you do that, you would give us the courage to respond as you would lead us to respond. And then, Father, we just leave it in trust, uh, by trust in your hands that you might bless. Father, we thank you that you've loved us first, enabling us to respond in love to you as well. Pray this prayer in your son's name.